Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of Eliximix. Uh, it's your host, Adi Iyengar. And in the panel today, we have Alan Waima. Hello. And we have a super awesome, exciting guest with us today. Uh, needs no introduction, but I'll still give him one. Um, uh, Sasha Yurik, the author of uh, Elixir in Action, um, author of several libraries uh one of my favorites and i think one of the under, underrated one is boundary huge fan of that uh so a shout out to that one but yes uh sasha great to have you thank you for having me nice to be here awesome so i i guess like a, a an interesting way to start would be like you mentioned you were you met alan at uh or you were with alan spent a lot of time at code beam EU, uh, is, is is that how you were invited? Is that how is it, it was that the channel through which you were invited today? Oh, that's actually uh, funny. I was invited, I think, prior to that. I uh, got some invitation email, and then uh, Alan caught me for a video that uh, he did recently, which was actually published. You know about some people from the Beam community. Uh, you know, uh, making statements about you know how they came to the community, what they uh, like, and where they see potential for. Extension, and so uh, so you know we uh, we did this video, and then we started chatting after that, and then like I figured, oh, we're, we're gonna do this, uh, we're gonna do this post- podcast, you know, like in a few weeks. So that, that was like a total coincidence, yeah. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, I, yeah. I was like wondering because you were mentioning before we started recording that you met at Code Beam. That's 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 funny coincidence. Yeah. Uh, I, I I guess like one thing I remember, I guess just to kick us off, we can talk about so many things with you here. Uh, but one thing I like be, uh, very clearly remember was a talk that came out earlier this year, uh, but we're, you were explaining um, how your website uh, or Langelist works, uh, just how you use Elixir to design, um, I don't know, like every aspect of it, like cleaning up and all that stuff, right? Uh, yeah, like you, you, you want to like explain a little bit of uh, how you approach the <clears throat> systems architecture part of it and how Elixir and Beam simplified that? Yeah, yeah. So... I mean, uh, the the thing about you know uh, what what kind of motivated me to do this talk is because you know sometimes people uh, tend to dismiss Elixir or Erlang because like oh you need this if you're like WhatsApp or or something of that magnitude, um, and uh, what what I have found in practice that like it works uh, really well even in simpler systems and uh, you know I used to also consult for uh, one agency company and they were like building small projects and. Uh, it works really well on that end as well. You don't have to be like super tall, super high to, uh, to you know, profit from from this Beam ecosystem, right? And this is one point which I'm often trying to drive in my my talks. You know, that like it works on a simpler end. And so uh, this particular talk, simplifying systems with Elixir, uh, focuses on like this very super simple scenario, right? So this is a blog. Uh, it's not really a wide or, or popular blog. You know, I don't. I actually didn't, didn't write any article in a while. You know, life. Life kept me busy. I should get back to that. But uh, at one point, I was like uh, actually on on the front page of Hacker News just once in my life. You know, so so that was cool. Um, That's crazy. But yeah, yeah, that was fun. I, I overslept the entire you know incident or uh, <laughs> or this entire period. I just woke up in the morning and like, oh wow, I, I was there and I just couldn't watch these live stats, you know, and whatnot. Uh, but other than that, and it receives, I think, I don't even really watch the, the visitors anymore but it receives like a maybe you know uh like few dozen requests per day you know so this is like very very low uh low usage side and of course you could write it in anything you know but like i was just gonna when i did it in elixir it, it was the second incarnation and uh my 
my goal here was, you know, to to show how you can write something simple, but something which like can actually scale and uh, can hold up to some bursts of traffic and whatnot. And uh, most importantly, that uh, architecturally it reduces the amount of moving pieces as much as possible, right? And so the Erlangelist is written and the, the source code is out there. It's like pretty outdated. I should, you know, uh, maybe bring it up to date, but it's out there on GitHub, uh, publicly available, and it's just Elixir, right? So, so nothing but Elixir. Uh, and you pretty much you start this thing like you know you build a release and you start the release and it's running right so the uh, despite uh, that you know it uses some persistence it runs some periodic job jobs uh, and it runs uh, self certification via let's uh, encrypt right uh, and so uh, the third part is particularly interesting you know because with uh, as far as I remember if you wanted to do this you would have to like run various jobs on the side install Python and whatnot. Right, and so th- this becomes complicated, and you're never really sure if you've gotten it right. You know, uh, you basically test those things in production, right? And so, uh, for the purpose of the Erlangelist, I wrote this library, which is called Site Encrypt, uh, which uh, basically allows Phoenix sites to to certificate to self certificate directly, right? So you just uh, you know put this uh, put this thing according to instructions into your project. And you know the site is gonna initially uh, generate the certificate for you, and then periodically it's gonna it's gonna renew it. It just works. You know, I built this thing in like 2018, as far as I remember, and uh, had to do an update when uh, the protocol version was changed, and it just works. You know, so uh, but That's the awesome. thing is that like no moving pieces. I actually have tests that verifies that this certification works, uh, and uh, it, it's quite you know. Shows like how you can simplify things, uh, remove the moving pieces of the board, and you know just use one piece of technology to manage everything. That's really awesome. I am definitely gonna give Site Encrypt a try. Um, yeah, I did not know this existed. Uh, it's crazy. Uh, yeah, it feels like just we have so many options on the ecosystem. Um, I, I guess one thing I remember uh, specifically also like had like. Um, um, uh, besides the whole uh, c- certificate stuff, there was also like uh, stats collection and cleaning part. Uh, I don't know if there's anything cool you want to like uh, uh, dig into over there. Yeah, this is like a simple example, which I of- often mention, you know, when people say like, you know, you-, you might think, oh, I'm just serving some requests, you know, I'm just showing some forms, putting stuff to the database uh, and bringing it back. And like, I-, I don't really have the need for all this concurrency, but like as soon as you want to run some periodic job and that's, happens like very early on in the project uh, in my experience no matter the size or the nature of the project and uh, already then you know people start setting up like uh, whether some cron job or uh, i don't know these days i, I presume it's all done on, on kubernetes or something like that or, or through aws uh, and i mean that's fine right it, it feels simple but but it creates a, what i like to call a disconnect you know a mismatch between uh, what happens in production versus what's running on your system, you know? So, like, those things typically don't run on your system. Uh, so you, you might have, like, a periodic job which runs in production and it doesn't run locally. And you might think it's fine, you know, but then you make some changes to your code. Maybe you make some changes to the nature of the data and, like, implicitly, this periodic job is going to fail and you're not going to notice this until it hits the production, you know? So uh, it kind of becomes more difficult to test and to just check things locally. And, you know, the whole point, what I like about <clears throat> this whole ecosystem of Beam, of Erlang, is that um, that basically, you know, you can really concentrate all of the activities of your system. You can consolidate them into this one project, you know. And so when I start stuff locally, 
uh, as much as possible of production is running locally, you know. Uh, so that's this uh, periodic job, which is an example that always pops up. Uh, self-certification is another example, you know. So again, I start the system locally, it self-certificates locally, you know, using self-generated uh, certificates, but doesn't really matter, you know, it uses the same protocol. And so locally, I know that HTTPS is working and that the uh, stuff is working uh, properly. And this is also used in tests, right? So for me, this is very important to, you know, be to have as much of production as possible uh, locally, as simple as possible, without the need to run Docker images and whatnot. Yeah, that's a great that's a great point. Uh, I, I think in this podcast we've kind of talked about how, you know, what you mentioned early on too that Elixir is actually yes, it's great for scaling, but it's actually really amazing for early stage startups too because it gives you this, you know, you know, quick. Uh, for lack of a better word, prototype, you know, with Phoenix and all the things existing, which which can scale up pretty decently, you know, that other frameworks can. But this is like a nice added bonus, like you were saying, it, because of the ease of with which you can spin up long-running processes, you can hand off, you know, periodic jobs or certificate, uh, you know, uh, authorization and all these like little things within the container without having to do something weird with the infrastructure. That's a great uh, selling point for Elixir here too, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Precisely that, you know, uh, what, what exactly what you mentioned, like for prototyping, like imagine, you know, you're prototyping with some other languages and then you have to bring in like five to four to five, you know, different pieces of technology and whatnot. Yeah. And it just becomes exhausting and very distracting, you know. And here, I mean, of course, you have to know this particular language, you know, you have to know the language that's your like main language or the application language, but you can do so many stuff directly. It's not maybe going to suffice for like more serious production, but it's going to get you down the road. You know, it's going to keep the ball rolling and you're going to be able to focus and iterate, you know, and then later on you can move to more uh, complex solutions. Makes sense. Makes sense. Alan, you got anything to add uh, to that? No, I was just looking at the starting crypt for a while and it's it's interesting that there was like no updates for a long time and all of a sudden you just updated and I was seeing what you updated to and you updated with Bandit, right? Are you actually using Bandit on your site now? Uh, no, I actually got those as uh, as contributions, you know. Uh, so uh, I just simply merged them. But but uh, yeah, it seems that people are using more and more Bandit. I was just watching it on the side, and I think that like maybe for uh, some next project, I would like to give it a try. Maybe when I find the time, I should actually, you know, because the Angeles is like quite obsolete, so the code base. Uh, I should you know update all of that, and maybe I should uh, switch from Cowboy to Bandit just to see, you know. Uh, how that works, yeah. But uh, but it's cool, you know, uh, that people have started contributing uh, other things, and uh, I really like the emergence of Bandit. Yeah. Okay. I was curious if anybody actually tried using Bandit yet, because I'm something I'm thinking about. It seems like they make a lot of bold claims that they're quite faster than uh, Cowboy. And so yeah, curious, I don't yeah. have any first-hand reports, but I presume that because people added the support, that they actually do use it for for something. Yeah. Nice. Um, I guess like. Uh, one thing I did want to talk, and I kind of briefly mentioned it early on, that I'm a huge fan of uh, Boundary, uh, and, and I think that's like in, in a language like Elixir, in a project like the way it's st- structured, like Phoenix, right? It, it, I think I didn't get, it gets very important to like kind of like define boundaries, right? To have to, I think the Phoenix context kind of was a step in that direction, right? But to be able to kind of like capture calls and like you know, maybe have like a CI fail and stuff like that if you're calling modules that you're not supposed to call. Yeah, I, 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 think, I think it's great. What, was there like an experience that you had that led you to build this? Like, uh, how did this come out to be? Yeah, I mean, it was like a combination of different factors. So of course, like uh, both of you and uh, everyone listening probably, you know, we worked on code bases of uh, dubious quality. 
uh, right? So I mean, stuff happens, right? No, no one really wants to produce, you know, a uh, complicated code base, but you you have like uh, deadlines, ever changing requirements, uh, team changes, and whatnot, and you know things happen, right? So the, the code kind of doesn't really end up the, the way we would really love it or like it to be, you know, and it becomes uh, really difficult to, to uh, you know, understand it, right? And so the problem is really when you think about like, why are we decomposing code into like modules and functions or classes and methods in OO is in my view, it's always about, you know, reducing the problem space, right? Because the prog program is too big to fit into our brains, you know? So we want to like have these smaller pieces, which we can actually work with, right? But if you don't really, delegate the responsibilities well, then like you end up needing to always read multiple pieces together. And then the modularity is lost, right? So like if I uh, have function foo calling function bar and I always have to read the function bar, then it's kind of, you know, questionable whether the existence of function bar is even, yeah. you know, justified, right? Uh, so, uh, and boundary kind of, you know, is designed to sort of, it, it cannot, of course, automatically help you or automatically help you, right? But it's going to, force you to, you know, answer some questions like, you know, who can call who, right? So the boundary is all about this part of the code can call that part of the code. So specifically, for example, you can call context from web, but you cannot call web from context. And that puts you into some problems. Like when you want to, for example, when you want to send the email, right? So for me, email always belongs to the core part. I call this the core, not the context. Um, and, uh, so the emailing logic, you know, uh, why does it be always belong there? Because it's always the same no matter which interface is used, whether it's, you know, uh, REST or GraphQL or Live View or, you know, uh, traditional view, you're always going to send this email in pretty much the same way. Uh, and so uh, the logic for composing email belongs into the core, but it, the core should not know about URLs, for example. So, so you need to figure out how am I going to work this out? You know, how, how does that work? Uh, so things like that, for example, right? The, the password confirmation is another example, simple example, uh, which you know uh, you should do outside of the core. And so boundary kind of when you set these uh, these uh, rules or constraints, it's going to force you to you know uh, decompose the problem in a more systematic fashion, so to speak, or de decompose your code base. Uh, what specifically motivated me to write it was uh, that people, uh, the fact that people have have used and are still using uh, umbrella applications. Right. And so I think that I'm like, I have been pretty vocal about Umbrella. I'm not, I'm not a fan. Basically, in most cases, I, I do not advise Umbrella. There could be some exceptions. But I think that like, at this point, I've seen so many abuses that I would almost dare to say that Umbrella should not be even supported. Uh, that being said, Umbrella does make sense in occasional situations. But uh, more often than not, I've just seen, you know, a bunch of bad, bad examples. And uh, I recall when I was you know, looking at some umbrella example and, uh, you know, this was the reasoning also people did it just so they can decompose and have some sort of a structure and enforce some rules. Uh, and I was thinking like, why do we need, you know, this special structure in mix? Why do we need this apps folder? And why do we need this sub projects? You know, why can't this all be somehow handled at the root level, you know? And that basically brought me to, you know, it, it initially, initially started as an internal hackathon we already had the XREF task, and I just based, you know, the initial implementation on that. And then in the next version, Jose, completely unrelated, he introduced compilation tracers, and then I just, you know, uh, which are like super powerful stuff, and then basically this is how Boundary happened to, to be. That's really cool. Um, yeah, I actually remember, I think it was, oh man, I remember 
was 2019, I think, around that time that you wrote this. There wasn't anything before that. Xref, the mixed task was there. And uh, I was like hacking that up to like make sure those things, you know, uh, like are, are enforceable. Uh, I specifically remember one of the projects that we um, uh, did for my one of my companies uh, in 2015. We're like one of the early adopters of Elixir. And we had a production project in 2015. And we, it kind of grew into, you know, like the, Umbrella, right? Uh, when when we, uh, it, umbrella apps weren't quite available there, but like kind of grew into like m- many kind of supervision supervision children calling themselves and stuff like that, right? Uh, and debugging something that went wrong was impossible because you don't know what's calling what. It's not obvious, and that led me to do the xref stuff and like when you wrote boundary, like make sure to incorporate that in the, you know, in my uh, uh, in a cookie cutter Phoenix cookie cutter template. Uh, it's a, a, a more share this experience. Like one of the, the reason experience I had that where boundary helped a lot was we wanted to split a few children in the supervision tree into, you know, across containers, like start one children in one container, one child in one container and the other one not. Right. But if you don't have a, you know, comp- compiled and guarantee that that context isn't calling the other one, you, you can't do it. Right. But because we had boundary, uh, uh, literally the boundary and also the boundary package established between those two children. We're able to like, you know, turn one off in one container, turn other one off another one, but knowing that we have a compile time check for this. So it really is very helpful for you to think about your, the structure of a project, decompose it. Uh, and, and obviously this, this it, the problem only arises when, you know, you grow to a point, but if you're able to incorporate, uh, incorporate it early on, the cost of uh, adopt, uh, adoption is not that high once you're used to it. And obviously the, the reward is very high as you grow and as the project grows. So I think it's a great contribution to the community. Thanks, oh, Ryan. thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's been working well. I've been introducing it also to some client projects and uh, some are actually quite large, you know, uh, after the fact. So we we added some uh, some things which kind of support more incremental, uh, you know, introduction of boundary to existing projects because, uh, you know, when I wrote it, I, I didn't really have that experience and, uh, I will, and, you know, it turned out to be very problematic when you have like a, a few hundred lines of code, a few hundred thousand lines of code and uh, you're just adding boundary and, you know, you just cannot satisfy all of those uh, problems at once. Right. Uh, so, so things have also improved since, and we have improved some uh, performance. There were like some issues with mostly in larger projects, but now they're it's working like pretty, pretty well. And yeah, it basically forces you to ask some questions. It uh, has some mixed tests that allow you to draw diagrams based on your boundary relationships, and then uh, you can actually look at your <clears throat> boundary structure, you know, rather than you know module structure, right? So you look at it at a higher level. Uh, and then uh, I, I used to use this, uh, I have these cases in the past when I would like look at those diagrams and then, you know, contemplate like, okay, now I see the, the higher level design, which is actually true, you know, because yeah. it's it's in sync, you know, and now we can think about like, why do I have this dependency? Uh, does this, is this dependency actually good? Am I missing some, some, something in between? And so it, it can really help you, I think with, uh, you know, but it's not automatical tool. You have to, you have to be, you know, committed to, to making some design for sure yeah um, I, I think one quick comment in the the compilation time i did experience that too but i think i think you just have a compiler right it's just a compiler that i think what we ended up doing was uh turn it on on through an environment variable uh mm-hmm. so like in the the ci we only run it on a specific job where we are, we're running boundary but for you know production image and stuff we don't even have added 
that compiler mm. added. So I think that, that really helped us. But yeah, I think compilation time did, I would say even increase exponentially as you add like more code and um, more boundaries. Yeah, yeah. So, so the pro- I mean, that problem should be solved uh, more recently. I, you know, I, uh, we really improved it to like a super large code base. Uh, and from what I'm seeing on this code base that I'm working on, it's just, you know, uh, it, it, it's not significant currently. Yeah, the problem was basically, and this is a sort of a problem in Beam in general, uh, when you have a large amount of modules, uh, then uh, loading those modules can take a long time. I, I've actually seen teams having problem with that uh, just, you know, in production. You you have like a, your uh, project with a lo- lot of modules and you deploy it and just, you know, if you use the OTP release in the embedded mode, which is default, which loads all the modules initially, sometimes a startup can take for like a minute or so on, on you know, uh, uh, it depends on your module count. A uh, frequent offender that I have seen are... Uh, Google API libraries. So these libraries oh. generate a huge ton of modules. Uh, unfortunately, it's not a, it's not really an optimal design. It, it doesn't have to be this way at all. Uh, and then they, they led to, you know, uh, sometimes, you know, just boot time or the load time will take for like a, a minute or so. And so the problem with Boundary was that Boundary was also loading those modules uh, to do its analysis. And this it is not doing this anymore. So it should be like pretty fast even for very large projects. Nice. So the solution is put everything in one module, right? <laughs> so the load well, times are uh, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, I mean, when you mention it, you know, I just want to say that I think uh, in many cases I've seen people uh, overly eagerly splitting things into modules, right? Mm. So like I'm a fan of small functions and small modules, uh, although it's not necessarily about the size. It's about like how self-contained thing is. Uh, but but uh, so I've seen a lot of these approaches, and I've seen it in other communities as well, where uh, people use like one module per business operation. Uh, I think that some people call it like command pattern. Uh, this isn't the original command pattern from the Gang of Four book, but it doesn't really matter. That's a nitpick. Uh, but uh, yeah, so I'm not a fan of that approach. It leads to a proliferation of modules. You you end up with a large amount of very small modules, which basically just you know. Uh, Kind of hide the fact that you have this larger hole, you know, some sort of uh, uh, subdomain or something, you know. And uh, I'm not a fan of that approach. Yeah. Gotcha. That, 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 that's all another very interesting point. I don't think we mentioned the podcast before. Like, uh, so yeah, tr- yeah, there is a cost of eagerly over modularizing, and and it could could really become big. That, that, that that's a good conclusion for our listeners. That's that's a great point. Mm. Yeah, I like to think of it like, you know, I have a very simplistic view on code design, you know, there are like books have been written about design and architecture, and they, they compared it to, you know, the real architecture and people quote timeless way of building and whatnot, you know, I have a sort of different view, you know, to me, this is all kind of like a filing system, you know, mm. you just organize this information so you can find your way around it and you can focus on some, you know, so you can quickly find what you're looking for and you can focus on only the stuff you're interested in. Ideally, yeah. of course, not in practice, right? And so uh, how are you going to organize it depends on how much information you have and what kind of information you have. So, you know, like in, typically for smaller projects like agency stuff, you don't really need a, an elaborate design, right? Uh, and even when you're writing your own, you know, super, you know, your next unicorn and whatnot, you don't know where it's going to take you, right? So start with a simple design, you know, something relatively lightweight, and then, you know, uh, reassess and refactor as you're going along. Makes sense. Yeah, that's a very 
very uh, that's coming from someone with a very deep knowledge of elixir. Uh, and speaking of deep knowledge of elixir, we heard a uh, third edition of elixir in action is out. Uh, 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 do you want to maybe cover what's different, what what all things you're covering? And I'm sure the community yeah. is super excited. It's like I think I think I think it's like unanimously like considered the best book in and best elixir books in the community. So I think everyone's super excited about that. Yeah. Okay, thank you. So, uh, yeah, uh, first, you know, uh, it, I don't think of it as the best book, or I don't think of any book as the best book, you know, but but I'm happy to hear and I get some, you know, unsolicited feedback every now and then, you know, people uh, come to me, whether through, you know, uh, online communication or when we when we meet in real life, you know, people say that they enjoy the book, that it helped them, and so that's always nice to hear. Um, but I think each book, you know, brings something different to the table, and... Uh, and that's fine, of course. Uh, and yeah, the book is kind of, it is and it isn't out. So it is available on Manning uh, as a part of its early access program. And I think currently they offer the entire content, right? So I I wrote everything. And by wrote, I mean, I basically, you know, went through the entire uh, text and, you know, made my changes and uh, additions. And so now we are in what's called the production phase where, you know, people are uh, correcting, you know, my uh, poor uh, English and, uh, you know, ty- uh, typos and whatnot, and so making the final layout. So uh, I'm not really sure. I think many plans to re- or hopes to release it somewhere early uh, 2024, but it's out of my hands now. But we are, like, moving towards the full release, you know, with the printed stuff and whatnot. And so, uh, yeah, basically this is, a, I would say, a relatively minor technical update. Uh, which is strange to say because the last edition was in, uh, took place in 2018. No, 2019 was released. Yeah, I was writing it in 2018 and in, then early 2019. So it's four years ago, right? Uh, almost five, actually, when you think about it, right? So, uh, so uh, surprisingly, you know, Elixir is a very stable language and uh, not much has changed. I mean, we got a lot of stuff, but we don't have a, you know, Things like Python 2 slash 3 or stuff like that. And so, uh, well, uh, until the typed Elixir arrives, uh, I, I don't think I'm going to have to make a lot of, lot of changes. So the biggest change is in the final chapter, which previously used distillery. Uh, and that was kind of a fun story because basically as soon as uh, the second edition was released, it be- became out of date, you know. <laughs> Hopefully I'm not going to li- live through that again. That was a bit, you know, depressing, but what can you do, right? And so... Uh, so I had to make some significant changes there simply to adapt to mixed release. I added some bits and pieces about, uh, because I've been asked this frequently about, uh, so like a few sections about tying uh, this story of being with microservices. Uh, so uh, most notably in that last chapter, I actually add an example with dockerization. And then in the first chapter, I add my own kind of personal take on uh, Elixir uh, compared to microservices. Uh, how does it stand, you know, because people are confused, like, do I need this thing if I have, you know, microservices, if I have Kubernetes, like, why do I need fault tolerance? Uh, so people get confused by that. So I added some, something like that. And otherwise, you know, there were like a bunch of, you know, thousand paper cuts, if you will. Uh, I had to care- carefully go through things and just, you know, okay, this information is no longer correct. And uh, mm. uh, here I should add like bits and pieces. So so stuff like that. But I would say that like uh, maybe... 90% at least it's uh it's it's still the same book. Yeah. Got it. Awesome. Alan, you got any questions uh about Elixir on action or maybe even um what we discussed earlier? 
No, I mean, there's so many things that ring to my mind. Like, I, I can't tell you how many times I have to explain to people that you shouldn't be like, you know, doing translations in the middle of like a context or in the, you know, the the struct, right? And all these kind of stuff. It just drives me nuts. I spend a lot of time, uh, you know, checking out these PRs from from another team. And if I'm not there for one day, like, then I come back and it's really like a disaster in terms of, you know, what boundaries there to solve. So I'm thinking maybe I should take a look at this and, and, mm. and invite it into the project at this point. Yeah, you can. You cannot really. In sorry, you can't really enforce, uh, or you you have to enforce it automatically, right? I I had like uh, yeah. conversations with teams, and I would say like, okay, we're not going to call repo from the controller. It's a simple rule. Everyone agrees, right? Uh, uh, small projects and all. Like the next day, the pull requests arrive. They're calling. Why did you do it? Uh, it was in haste, you know. And uh, like, yeah, of course, and, and that's fine. No, you know, no hard feelings. Uh, but basically, then it depends on the human in the code review to to spot this thing, and this is all error prone, and ultimately it's going to leak. You know, so you, you need to enforce this through tooling, and Boundary helps you with that. Yeah, de- definitely. Because um, I'm just thinking myself, like most of these guys who are working with Elixir nowadays in this team, they're all like working with JavaScript for a while, and uh, the code we have right now in the front end is really like a super big spaghetti. Because I guess that's the way you should do it. I, I don't know. I'm not a Redux expert in how we set up everything. Uh, so, like, when I see the code in the back end and I see the front end, I'm like, well, maybe it's because this is what they're used to of like things being mixed around in this way. Uh, mm. But in any case, yeah, maybe I should take a look at this. It's it's interesting, and uh, yeah, I think it would it would I wouldn't feel so bad not checking every single PR now anymore. I would probably wouldn't actually need to do that anymore. Mm. You, you can set it up like on a very high level. So just set like these high regions such as, you know, uh, web versus context and say like, you know, this can call that. And then you can have modules which are private. So this is the repo example, right? So yeah. uh, web can call context, but repo is not a public module in the context uh, region. So boundary, the second part is that it gives you what uh, Elixir doesn't and this notion of private modules. Uh, so you basically you have like boundaries, just you know your namespace, and you say like only these modules are exported in that namespace, and only those modules can be called from other boundaries, right? So it's relatively lightweight if you don't go into all this sub-boundary <laughs> part, which I'm still you know unclear whether it was a good idea or not. So I support like this nesting of boundaries; it's completely optional, and uh, I'm I'm still undecided whether it was a good idea to have it or not. Yeah, I, I think the cool thing about it is like not taking something out, out, out of uh, boundary, but I think it's like, like like Sasha mentioned too. It's like the tracer itself is pretty good now. Um, you 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 can use that to you know flag calls to. Uh, I think my um, um, I've worked in teams where people are very particular about what dependencies to bring in and not to bring in, and one of the teams did not want to bring a boundary just for that. Uh, um, there was a use case where we created a new module which is supposed to be a wrapper around an existing one right so just like uh, created a ci task that runs a tracer and uh, get all the calls and if there is a file calling this module that it's not supposed to mm. just exit with one right yeah. very simple uh but sasha i was gonna say exactly what he said right like uh, you have to enforce these things like something so obvious that that's so obvious you should definitely enforce it programmatically it, even if Alan, you're reviewing all the PRs, even if say that is, it's uh, first of all, it's unreasonable. But if you do it, even if you do it, it's not a good use of your time either, too, right? Like to add all these PR comments. As a senior engineer, your time might be better used at places like, you know, maybe not saying not saying the same thing over and over again, right? So I'm a huge fan of adding 
compiled time checks. I, I know there's diminishing returns at a point, and I'm way past that point. There's a lot of compiled time checks that I had, <laughs> but uh, boundaries well before uh, yeah. you get those. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Credo is another example. I, I'm a huge fan of Credo and yeah. I use a lot of Credo. Uh, typically, you know, when some team asks me, like, can we set up a style guide? Then, you know, the answer is we're going to set up a Credo configuration for that. And uh, whatever we can put in there, we should put it. And for, for the stuff you mentioned, like, uh, sometimes we would write custom Credo check. Uh, I would use, like, some kind of a rule. I'm not going to say rule of three, but something like that. You know, when something repeats, like, a few times, so maybe not in the first incident, but, like, if it repeats two or three, four times, you know, we see it in different PRs, then like, okay, maybe it's time to, to, to add a rule. We just recently had added a custom rule uh, with one team, you know, that uh, checks for, that was like recurring issue, Yoda assertions, right? Where people would uh, have stuff, something, assert okay equals, right? Uh, and then what you're testing, right? And that's, I understand where it comes from, uh, but, you know, uh, it, it's confusing to read it that way. And so, uh, you know, I... We added a check for that. And otherwise, you know, check for more complex assertion with pattern matching. So my my take is that you should really be very conservative about how you're using pattern matching assertions or pattern matching in general when we speak about that. You know, it tends to be overused and it, it yields a code which is very difficult to, to understand, right? So I think that pattern matches should be re, re, really simple. Like, you know, you want to assert, okay, comma, result equals something and then assert something about the result subsequently in... Uh, following expressions instead of having a cert okay and this like huge multi-line sausage which matches on different aspects of result uh and then like by the time i read this left part of the expression you know uh i forgot like wait what am i even checking here you know (laughs) where i'm at you know and so uh, we added the credo check which basically uh you know reports a bunch of those issues yeah, plus one to Credo, uh, and that's such a great that's such a great example of a custom Credo check. And, and it's again a shout out, right? So easy to add custom Credo check. Well, I mean, with the ASTs, it can get a little tricky sometimes. <laughs> it's not straightforward, but it's like still the the rewards. Like like Sasha said, like if you see something happening X number of times, spend an hour or two creating that check mm-hmm. uh, to save yourself time. W- one check I, also, I I recently created. It's very similar. It's like for for testers. Uh, I'm not a fan of assert something, refute something without the second argument because, you know, it's like ambiguous nil or false, right? So it's a very simple check. It took me 15 minutes to write that and mm. boom, right? So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, this is a great example. And in general, I think Credo, the way you have to write Credo checks, right? So it's a bit unusual because you work with the AST, right? The abstract yeah. syntax tree. But as it happens, this is actually, I think, a good way to familiarize familiarize yourself with the abstract syntax tree because you're not writing like the full macros and whatnot. You just get, you know, Elixir code represented as a, in terms of Elixir terms, you know, and then you basically have to kind of, you know, pattern match or, you know, detect the, the problematic part that you're looking for. And so it's a nice exercise. I like writing credo checks. They're fun. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Oh, I, I had some, I, I'm going to be the opposite person over here and a little bit complain about credo. There's definitely some weirdness to it. Um, I, I don't remember. There was something where like I would change it to f- to fix the rule, but then I broke another rule. Uh, I forgot what it was exactly. Mm. And then what I did see happen quite a bit is uh, like if you use the from syntax with Ecto, so you say like from like T in team or something like that. It's for some reason it forces you to take that T in team outside and put it into parentheses and pipe that in. It's a little bit 
strange. Like there's some weirdness about Credo that okay. I'm not super happy about. I mean, the, the thing about Credo is that, you know, uh, I, I think of it as more as a framework for, you know, generating your style guide or the desired uh, shape of the code at some more mechanical level. And, uh, you know, it comes with all these checks and it feels a little bit arbitrary which are enabled or which not, you know, but I don't really care about that. You know, I basically just uh, start with enabling them all and then, you know, cherry pick one by one, like, uh, you know, am I going to check this or am I not? And uh, all of these, which are kind of, you know, uh, uh, subjective, I mostly, not mostly, I disable them, you know, whatever is sort of subjective is immediately disabled and for others, you know, uh, it depends, like, are, do we care about this or not? So, for example, you have the, the module doc, you know, every module should have a documentation, right? So, I, uh, my personal opinion is, uh, if you're not writing a library, this should not be enforced, you know. Module may have a documentation or not, if you're talking about, like, the final application code, you know, uh, irrespective of the size, really, because this documentation just ends up being, you know, uh, repetition of the module name or something like that, right? So, so I don't really think uh, it's it's useful. It's a completely different story for a library, you know. So if you're building yeah. a library, then to total different story. Another one is to do. So there's like this check which uh, complains about to do items. I think to do having to do comments is perfectly fine, and you know I disable that. So it it you know it it gives you the options, and then even once you configure, you can on a case by case basis you have like this comment like uh, hash uh, credo disable for next line. And you can say, like, disable this check for next line. Right. Uh, and uh, so, like, if you have 99% of the time, you know, your check is actually going to be fine. And then you're going to have, like, one or two exceptions. I think it's also uh, fine. So, Credo is very unopinionated that way. Yeah, I, I would agree. Uh, uh, again, just to, like, uh, add to what Sasha said, I, I think once you figure out your configuration, right, it, it's a lot of work to initially do that. Uh, but but once you figure it out, uh, it is just, you know, it'd be easier to like reuse that. I mean, assuming you're, you have the power mm. to, you know, yeah. enforce that in the other project you move, but uh, it, it takes, it takes a bit. Right. But uh, I haven't changed my Twitter configuration since 2019. Projects. Yeah. But I mean, you know, the checks, uh, whenever you update to the new version, there are new checks. So you should reevaluate. Yeah. Uh, I, I would still maintain compared to writing a 50 pages document uh, about <laughs> do's and don'ts, which no one is going to read. Yeah. Uh, I think this is much less work. It's a, it's a one-off and it's automatically, you know, enforced. So, like, uh, I'm pretty much uh, a fan of it, you know. So, for me, Credo, I mean, it it needs some love, I think, maybe in terms of, you know, performance. And there are maybe some, you know, complexities which are not necessarily needed, you know, which have been accumulated over time. But uh, in general, I'm really happy with it, yeah. What, what else I think was uh, quite interesting, and uh, sadly, Adi couldn't make it to Codebeam, was... Um, your your talk, right? When you did a code beam, it, was that? Have you given a talk before or no? Because that's quite a new project that you're working on that you presented about. Uh, that, that was a new talk. The, yeah, that was a completely new. Talk. That was the first time that you gave that talk. Yes. Oh, I'm glad I was there for that one. That was really <laughs> good. That was quite interesting because not a lot of people talk about this stuff, and it's interesting that. Yeah, we're not going to tell you what the talk is about. <laughs> I was going to what is what is about. <laughs> <laughs> we're just going to talk around the around the talk and not going to give you the, the subject. Uh, yeah, I mean, okay, maybe Sasha, I'll let you kind of introduce what the talk is about, and then uh, I wanted to say something quick about it, which is quite interesting. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah it's difficult to say what the talk is about, though. Uh, I'm also sort of reluctant because I, I plan to re-deliver it on on. Uh, Code just beam, keep, uh, keep it going. Just, keep, just don't tell them what it is. 
so the talk is uh, the title is against the grain, right? And the, the the general message of the talk is how we sometimes need to make you know different kind of decisions, which are maybe not you know mainstream decisions, uh, the way things are done traditionally. But so in this particular talk, you know, I'm talking about uh, Kafka. So my my clients were using Kafka uh, intensively uh, from their project, uh, and uh, they they bumped into you know some limitations of the existing clients, and you know they they spent like years living with basically substandard Kafka experience from Beam. And, you know, so the question was like, okay, what, what are we going to do about it? You know, they were really unsure. And I was thinking, okay, I, I, I didn't know anything about Kafka, right? I, I was thinking like, okay, we're going to write a client. How difficult can it be? You know, you, you follow some, you know, protocol documentation, you know, you follow the server's queue and uh, surely it's, it's going to be like relatively straightforward. And uh, as it turns out, of course, that was a very optimistic uh, assessment, you know, Kafka, Kafka action has a lot of complexity in the client. And so what we did instead was we basically uh, used the Java client, right? Uh, Java is Java client is the most stable client or the official client of uh, Kafka, right? So uh, it's part of the same repository and it's, you know, completely up to date with all the latest bells and whistles. And we basically, you know, wrote a port bridge uh, which wraps the Java client and then we use that from from Elixir, so I, I now gave uh, gave away the spoiler. Hopefully, it's not going to be, uh, uh, but it goes then into various details, uh, which I'm not going to mention. Yeah, so that's the general idea. So, Ellen, you want to take it from here? Well, what I thought was super interesting is like is like you you really followed, I think the way that everybody would go, and also you'd follow like the way that like okay, yeah, of course you would do this, but then it didn't work. It was like all right, mm. obviously yeah. I want to stay in Elixir. You know, I want to stay in the Beam, so I'm going to write the client. Or, or first, I'm going to investigate, do, is there any clients? Okay, the clients, there's like kind of lacking. Okay, maybe I need to do my own. Okay, there's too much complexity over here. And looks like Java's one, the best one. Okay, well, of course, you know, I, I know that we have like the, the Java interface or what is, what is it called? The, the J interface. interface. Yeah, the J interface. Okay, ob- obviously, right? And it's like, well, that doesn't quite work either, right? And then it's like you fall back to using a port, which... I think anybody would follow the same order. Like port is like the last thing anybody usually thinks about when it comes to mm. stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that, that's uh, that was uh, I recall when I was just developing, you know, developing this implementation, right? And I was thinking like at some point, okay, I made like so many different choices. You know, this this is kind of getting weird, but there are reasons. You know, I presented this. Uh, I first did like a quick prototype, and then I presented this to the clients, and you know, explained like why are we going to do it this way? They actually tried this route with J interface and uh, it's got really confusing because J interface is about, you know, distributed Erlang, you build a node in Java, right? Which is kind of weird. And then you end up with these distributed problems which you shouldn't really have in the first place. Uh, and so then I went for port and I was thinking like, okay, that there are like a bunch of di- these different decisions, but they are made for good reasons, right? Uh, you know, we, we tried the mainstream approach and, uh, or at least considered it and it just wasn't working. And I think that, uh, this is really something that I'm trying to, you know, my position is that we shouldn't cargo cult things. We also shouldn't be different for the sake of being different. You know, but I also see this very frequently, you know, just people want to be like uh, somehow stand out. Like when we're talking about code, you really want to be pragmatic, you know. So mostly mainstream approaches work well for you, but you should always question them. You should always think like, does this with the properties it has, does it actually make, you know, sense in my case? And sometimes it doesn't. So this J interface, you know, I had this slide where I'm showing, like, if you Google, you know, I want to combine Java and Elixir, and you put this into Google, or you put this into ChatGPT, 
and they're both going to tell you use J interface, right? And this is not a correct answer in the vast majority of cases. You know, it's not something you should actually consider first. Yeah, you should use port. I'm very curious to uh, know why. I don't have much experience with J interface, but I remember with ports, uh, I use it with like Python ones, and I had to do a lot of encoding and decoding functions uh, through, uh, you know, the types. Uh, I, I mean, I would imagine J interface would have a better way to uh, kind of like play around with Java classes and Erlang and mm. stuff. But uh, I imagine why you think it's not a good uh, first. Uh, yeah, so, so it's a funny thing you mentioned because I also mentioned this in the talk. We actually do use J interface for this part of encoding and decoding. Ah. Uh, uh, but even that is actually not a problem. So, uh, I mean, you could use something like JSON or Protobuf uh, to transfer data, and this is a solved problem immediately. Yep. Also, there is uh, the external term format, <clears throat> which is what you get when you uh, do, uh, you know, uh, term to binary, you know, so the, that binary you get is called yep. external term format. It's documented. And uh, there are libraries written in other languages. Uh, so you could typically use or find one. Uh, last time I did a port with uh, Go, I actually I think I wasn't either wasn't able to find one or maybe it wasn't working well, so I just wrote my own, but not like the full full blown. I just wrote like I needed, I don't know, I needed maybe a tuple and an atom and maybe some numbers or something, and I just wrote this small subset of what I needed. Gotcha. You know, and uh, that was like pretty pretty quick. You just follow the spec, and uh, and that's basically it. You know, so. Uh, uh, so, uh, yeah, but I mean, the problem is uh, J-Interface uh, basically, you know, puts you into this domain of like, I'm going to start another node, which is written in Java, and then I'm going to connect to uh, the Erlang node or Elixir node, right? And then we're going to exchange messages. And this is more like peer-to-peer -peer relationship when you think about nodes, you know. Uh, nodes typically have different life cycles. So nodes can live separately. You have to think about stuff such as uh, net splits, like, you know, what if I'm disconnected from that and uh, whatnot. Uh, port is more a leader follower or a main program slash sub program type of relationship, right? And that's what you typically want in this kind of scenarios. You know? So you want your sub program to run in Java, right? So you're going to start this and it's going to run and it can only live as long as you live. And uh, port lends itself more naturally to, to that type of problem. You could do it with J interface by all means, but uh, you, it's going to, you know, you're going to be forced to deal with things which are not part of your problem domain. So uh, I think it's going to overcomplicate design, yeah. I mean, ports are just, just to add to this, ports are, in my mind, very heavily underrated. You know, people people tend to go for uh, NIFs, uh, for example. NIFs, of course, do have their own place uh, uh, and their, their, their own sweet spot, but uh, port is my first go-to consideration. Whenever I want to combine Elixir with something else, I'm going to first think about port because it gives you this message passing semantics. It gives you fault tolerance and isolation. Uh, and, uh, you know, that, that to me means a lot. And so I'm going to first start thinking about that. And then in specific, specific cases, I would go for uh, an if. And when, when we're talking about writing a node in a language which is not a Beam language, I think it's a nice idea, but mostly I, I wouldn't go there. I, I don't really see a lot of interesting cases for that. Makes sense. Awesome. Um, Alan, do you have anything else or sh should we start wrapping yeah, I, up? I was just kind of curious about the port part. Did you use something like Porcelain or just use straight like Erlang ports kind of stuff for the port? Oh, uh, so I use straight uh, Elixir wrapper. Yeah. 
for this particular part. Yeah, uh, but the ports do have some 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 issues. So I mean, ports mostly post ports work well if you have the program under your control. If you're the author of the program and you wrote it specifically to be running as the port, right? Which I did for this particular case, right? So this Java program is written uh, exactly for that, and so it's written in a safe way such that when uh, the Erlang node dies, <clears throat> the port is going to immediately terminate like uh, almost almost in the same moment, right? And so uh, that works fine. Otherwise, if you're running, people run other programs to ports, like uh, whenever you're running external command, basically it goes through the port uh, technology, and that can have some uh, issues. Uh, you might have uh, lingering programs and whatnot, uh, like your beam node dies and your programs are still running. And uh, then you have a, uh, uh, what is it called porcelain right and uh there are other wrappers as well uh which which can help you know dealing with those kind of issues yeah i think a cool thing about port that i a, a big reason i don't do as much research as, as you did sasha a big reason why i was i used port over nifs a couple of times was just a safety like it, if it could crash you know it won't crash the vm and I, I, I guess there are ways you could use nifs that will not crash the vm like limiting it but it just was just the simplicity Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And maybe one important point that I want to say here is like ports are the reason why I sleep uh, tight. You know why, why I have a good good sleep because you know people <laughs> often mention like you know oh I don't know Elixir or Lang you know the ecosystem could be problematic you know what if I can find a library and whatnot and to me it's always like mostly you will be able to do it but if you can't and it's difficult to write it you can always combine it with uh, something else right yeah. uh, and uh, it's fairly straightforward I would say you know. So, uh, so for me that this is always, you know, I have this, I know I have this escape latch, you know, like, uh, if all else fails, I'm just going to use Java Kafka client, you know, and it worked wonderful. That's awesome. Yeah. I think that, 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 that last bit, I think it's a great, uh, thing to keep in mind for any criticism of, uh, uh, you know, the Beam ecosystem in terms of libraries and maturity. Yeah. There's always tools, uh, you know, one can suit uh, 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 more for one uh, for for a use case like NIFS if you want more synchronous stuff, more heavy computation versus like most you know for most of the cases ports for simple simplicity. <clears throat> you can use literally any language as long as it's part of part of your uh, uh, VM uh, or or uh, the operating system, the container, uh, and and just you know asynchronously call functions and you know still have the security that uh, Beam gives you. Uh, that's really cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you put it really well. I, I totally agree with that. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, well, uh, I guess uh, we should move to picks. We, uh, it, it's crazy, Sasha. Uh, it, it just feels like we have so much more to talk about. Uh, we, will, we, need to, we need to have you over again to discuss about so many things, especially after Elixir uh, uh, Action comes out and uh, maybe when you talk uh, on uh, Kafka client is out too. Maybe we can dig a little bit more into your experience as well. So uh, to not to spoil all the details, uh, but uh, yeah, uh, I guess I guess uh, yeah, I'll, I'll very uns- in a very unsmooth manner transition us over to <laughs> picks. Alan, do you have any picks for us? Yeah, I'm just going to pick uh, a game I've been trying to get through. Uh, Robocop Rogue City. I don't know if you tried that one yet? <laughs> yeah, I have. I mean, uh, it, it it is a game that looked. It looks like I want to try, but whenever I 
uh, I don't know. I saw the trailer. It, it it looks like how RoboCop would. It looks very, you know, like robotic, not something, but not very smooth, not very, I don't know. Yeah. It looks a little funny and goofy for like a better word. Well, I mean, yeah, it, it, the developers are are not a, like a AAA studio. I see. Um, and the, uh, the NPCs are a little bit weird, but there's still nostalgia in there. I think Sasha and I probably both are big fans of RoboCop. Sasha looks like a big RoboCop fan. <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, so it's just mostly nostalgia, I think. Sometimes when you just have nostalgia, you look past all the, the blemishes. Uh, but in general, it's kind of nice. And it's good that they got like the original actor, Peter Weller, to, to do the voice. I just wish they could bring back some of the other people. But uh, like the the... The PlayStation looks exactly the same from the movie, and so many other things look exactly the same. So it's like, wow, it's there's a lot of love put into it. You know, that's why I said it's mostly a nostalgia hit more than anything else. That's very cool. Um, yeah, the, definitely worth giving a try. It, it's Detroit, right? Yeah, it's Detroit. Um, nice. it, but it's kind of interesting because the, they actually managed to, to predict that Detroit would actually go bankrupt, which is what actually happened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i didn't think about it but exactly wow that was visionary right <laughs> there's a lot of things in there that, that's that are like you laugh at it then and then you're like if you look back at it now you're like oh my god i think they predicted most things on there like the way the news was was shown in there where they'd be like oh uh you know this terrible thing just happened next story like that's kind of like what news is like nowadays a little bit you're you're laughing yeah. like I'm saying it's a bad thing. It's just I'm just telling it like like I see it, you know. Yeah, it's 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 true. It's true. Awesome. Yeah, that's a great pick. Uh, Sasha, you got any picks for us? Well, I was a bit caught by surprise with this, but uh, I guess off the top of my head, uh, I'm going to mention the band which is called Postmodern Jukebox. Uh, have any of you heard of them? Nope. Oh, then you're in for a treat, right? So they've been around for like, something like ten years. Uh, they're like a huge band, more like an ensemble of various people with maybe some uh, core. And what they do is they take like a popular song, like, I don't know, say Taylor Swift uh, or, uh, you know, like popular artists, and they do the the cover versions, very quality cover versions, uh, all live recorded, like one take, in the style of like, say, all all this jazz or 50s or 60s. And so they totally transform the song uh, to the point where uh, I consider many of their their covers to be uh, superior to the original, actually, you know. So, yeah, totally recommend. Yeah, they, they deserve more recognition than they have. So you can you can find them on YouTube, Postmodern Jukebox. That's very cool. I'll definitely check them out today. Um, awesome. I, I guess I have a uh, the, the pick I have is a, we talked about Code Beam America a little bit, but uh, and I kind of always mention all these Code Beam conferences. It's happening, uh, I think, in March next year, uh, and um, uh, like any Code Beam and anything Erlang Solution does, they uh, ask for volunteers. Uh, if you guys want, you know, free virtual tickets uh, uh, for you know um, some at the cost of like helping out, asking questions and stuff like that, like uh, sign up for volunteering. Uh, these guys do a very good job organizing these conferences and, you know, volunteer, volunteers is a, volunteering is a great way to support them and also get, you know, free passes to the conference. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's it for my pick today. Um, also, I'm going to be, I'm going to be there. I'm doing a talk and I'm doing a training session. So, you know, if you, if you volunteer, we're going to meet definitely. Awesome. What's your training session about? Uh, it's going to be about uh, practical testing with uh, Elixir and Phoenix. Yeah. 
that's very cool. I, I would highly recommend people to sign up for that. That sounds like very useful and very, uh, yeah, it would help you grow a lot in your career. It's awesome. Cool. Well, this is an awesome recording. Thanks a lot for uh, uh, joining, Sasha. This is, yeah, was definitely one of the best episodes uh, in recent memory. Uh, and, and so excited, uh, the prospect of having you again uh, soon, too. Uh, maybe even before the book is out. I don't know. We'll, we'll reach out. We, we, I, I would love to have you more often on the, uh, on the podcast. Yeah, sure. Just reach out and uh, we'll chat some more. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was really uh, a fun chat. Awesome. All right, folks, that's it for this week. Uh, yeah. Bye. See you next week. <laughs>